We're all in such a rush. Frantically killing notifications and emails as we zip from Zoom call to Zoom call. By the way, is it any coincidence that the leading platform for business meetings is called Zoom? Companies are judged on how well they did last quarter, last month, last week. With shareholders breathing down the necks of multitasking CEOs and frazzled CMOs whose tenure is shorter than ever. Is it any surprise? How can any leader show progress on a strategic plan when they aren't given enough time for the plan to take hold? Opportunities are always presenting themselves and visions of grandeur are ever-expanding. But the world is a finite place. We can only fit so much into four walls in 24 hours. When we overstuff our attention, we end up losing sight of what matters. Look at GE. Decades of corporate expansion and acquisitions left it a bloated mess, unable to focus on its core business. Too much short-term thinking led to a lack of focus, addressing only what was directly ahead. Conversely, Jeff Bezos communicated the long view to his board and investors, and as a result, Amazon wasn't profitable for its first decade. But they stuck with it. They believed in Bezos and his vision and have done well. What's holding us back from focusing on the long term? How can we navigate our day-to-day -day lives while being driven by a goal we may not achieve for years? Have you ever admired a leader and wondered just what it is that makes her who she is? How he came to embrace the things that advanced him? Welcome to Timeless Leadership, where we look at the principles that define success. This is a show for leaders at all stages of their careers who aspire to understand what it truly means to be a leader. And who is a leader? Dolly Parton said, If your actions inspire others to dream more, learn more, do more, and become more, you are a leader. Together, we'll explore key principles, not only in the sense of fundamentals, but also in the ethical sense, the habits, character traits, and virtues that form the backbone of leadership. Principles that are just as relevant and essential in the 21st century as they were in the 1st century. This is Timeless Leadership. Hello and welcome once again to Timeless Leadership, where we explore principles and virtues that accompany successful and admirable leaders. Thanks for considering this show worthy of your time. It's my hope that we provide a quality conversation for you that keeps you coming back. And we do these shows live each week from Fireside Chat, and then we package them up as a podcast later. So if you haven't been able to join us live, you can certainly listen later. But the bonus of being here while we're recording is you get to participate in the conversation. You get the chance to ask questions. So feel free to listen and follow. Uh, on whatever platform you choose, including on Apple Podcasts. Just look for Timeless Leadership. And, of course, subscribe to the Timeless and Timely newsletter 
where I regularly write about leadership and communication. Dory Clark helps individuals and companies get their best ideas heard in a crowded, noisy world. She's been named one of the top 50 business thinkers in the world by Thinkers 50. She was honored as the number one communication coach by the Marshall Goldsmith Leading Global Coaches Awards and one of the top five communication professionals in the world by Global Gurus. She's a Wall Street Journal best-selling author of Entrepreneurial You, Reinventing You, and Stand Out, which was named the number one leadership book of the year by Inc. Magazine. A former presidential campaign spokeswoman, Clark has been described by the New York Times as an expert at self-reinvention and helping others make changes in their lives. She's a frequent contributor to the Harvard Business Review and consults and speaks for clients such as Google, Yale University, and the World Bank. She's a keynote speaker and teaches for Duke University's Fuqua School of Business and Columbia Business School. She's a graduate of Harvard Divinity School, a producer of a multiple Grammy-winning jazz album, and a Broadway investor. And her latest book is The Long Game, How to Be a Long-Term Thinker in a Short-Term World. Dory Clark, welcome to Timeless Leadership. Scott, I'm so glad to be here talking with you. Excellent. Well, you know, there are so many questions on my mind, but the first, probably the most obvious one, what Broadway show? I have actually invested in a number of Broadway shows. Uh, the most the most successful financially, I guess you could say, is a play from a couple of years ago uh, with Daniel Radcliffe called Lifespan of a Fact. It was about uh, truth and journalism and <laughs> what constitutes fake news. And uh, the uh, probably the most successful artistically was uh, a show called The Inheritance, which actually won the Tony for Best Play uh, this year. Wow, that's fantastic. So I would imagine for for those shows that actually make it past uh, the openings, um, as, as an investor, you you need to have a long-term vision there. You need to stick with it to, to see your investment through. You do, and it is very much not dissimilar to venture investing because – you know, um, as a venture capitalist or an angel investor, you're expecting 70% to be losers. And unfortunately, that ratio is pretty much the same on Broadway, too. You just hope that the uh, that the hits outweigh the misses. Wow, those odds are not good. So what what actually led you in that direction as an investor? I decided to do it, um, you know, not not really, you know, for for the hope of outsized returns, for sure, because it is a fairly uh, risky strategy for that. But actually, for me, one of the the drums that I like to beat is trying to ensure that the actions that we take hopefully are killing multiple birds with one stone. Mm. So for me, the the whole point of investing above and beyond hopefully making some money was that I wanted to learn about the process of Broadway because starting in 2016, I came up with a, a plan, an idea for myself. And the goal was that I would have a 10-year goal of writing my own musical 
that would hopefully make it to Broadway by the 2026 season. And in order to do that, I, I knew I needed to really uh, work hard to educate myself about the industry. So that's uh, that's why I got involved with investing. That is fantastic. So are are you still on that path? I am working on it. In fact, as we are speaking, uh, Scott, literally tonight, I have a 10-minute musical that I wrote, which is going to be part of a, a showcase that's premiering tonight at Symphony Space in New York City. So this is uh, this is going to be the first time um, ever for me, actually, because things for the past two years have been uh, a little wacky uh, with regard to staging musicals. Uh, but this is going to be the very first time that one of my shows, uh, I'm actually going to get to see it up performed in person, not on Zoom, on stage with live professional actors. So it's really exciting for me. Oh, my gosh. That's amazing. I, the, the hairs on the back of my neck are going up just thinking about that for you. Thank you so much. Yeah, oh. it's it's going to be pretty cool. Um, at complete kind of left turn here. Well, not complete left turn, but um, have you seen the documentary Bathtubs Over Broadway by any chance? Oh, my goodness. I haven't, but I've, I've heard good things about it. Yeah. So it, it's basically how in particularly the 60s and 70s and a little bit into the 80s, a number of corporations actually used Broadway entertainers, uh, writers, songwriters, musicians, performers to show up at national meetings, sales meetings, company-wide meetings, and do musicals that were written specifically for the companies. And uh, there's there's a guy who has made it his life's work to collect these albums and original uh, music from those um, those musicals. So you, you talk about having a long view for something. This is a guy who's really in it for the long haul as he tries to uh, track these down. Seriously, that's amazing. Uh, so it's it's interesting. I just want to pick up on that thread there about you having this 10-minute showcase this evening in New York. This seems to me to be an important aspect of when we are doing uh, our long-term planning and our long-term thinking to have little bouts of of success along the way to kind of keep us focused, to kind of keep us motivated. Can, can you talk a little bit about that in terms of keeping people engaged in a long-term vision? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I think a, a problem that we often have as humans is that we set some big goal for ourselves, which, it, you know, is great. It's good to have a big goal. But the problem with a big goal is that usually it takes a while to achieve it. And so in my case, uh, if if the only thing that was on my mind, if the only definition of success was, well, I'm going to be on Broadway in 10 years, it is a pretty long, lonely road between literally learning how to write a musical and then waiting 10 years for something to be the ultimate measure of, of success or not. Like it's, it's like taking a college course that is entirely graded on your final exam. It's, it's like we can do it that way, but it's uh, a little, uh, a little frightening and a little daunting to do it. Uh, I think if we want to be successful, we need hopefully to have a more nuanced understanding of human nature and how how the human mind works which is you know we we need a little something to keep us going we need a little encouragement and so you know is is it moving the ball forward for me to have a staging of a 10 minute musical i mean one can argue whether it is or not but it, but for me it is a sign of progress and that actually is meaningful in and of itself because we need that reinforcement to stay the course 
for the for the long slog that we're accomplishing. Yeah, yeah, and it, it's almost like the world is designed to keep us from doing long term planning. I mean, you think you talk about human nature. You think back to our origins of of hunting and gathering. Um, you know, this these are in the days before refrigeration, and you you ate what you killed, and people very much lived day to day. Fast forward to 2021, you know, we spend so much time chasing emails and Slack messages and notifications and, you know, playing a proverbial digital whack-a-mole. It's hard to rise out of those pulls on a a daily or minute-by-minute basis. So what's your prescription for how we can actually kind of go against this grain of human nature of immediacy and focus on some of the things that require our long-term attention. Yeah, well, this this is an important question, obviously, because for for something like social media, which of course is a world that you know so well, Scott, it's on one hand, it's it's great. You know, I mean, we we know all the benefits. We can reach people. We can shape the narrative. On the other hand, of course, you literally could spend twenty-four hours a day. You know, it, it's always going to be there. There's always going to be more. And the problem with social media and its ilk, it's, it's, not, um, it's not that it feels like a waste of time and we do it anyway. It's actually that it provides the illusion to us that it's a productive use mm-hmm. of our time. Yeah. Like when we're doing cat videos, we're like, okay, I know, I know I'm screwing <laughs> off. Like, I get it. Like, I'm wasting time. But when you are brand building on social media, you're like, oh, well, you know, I'm, I'm, making, I'm making a difference here. I'm building my business. Well, you know, that's great. And it's true. But it's also true that if you're just starting your business, what you really need is clients. And if all you're doing is kind of dithering around for eight hours a day on LinkedIn or Facebook, you might get clients eventually, but it is uh, it is not the, the kind of direct path that you really need to put dollars in your pocket right away. And so I, I think it can trick us. <laughs> yeah. So how do you think about this? I mean, you're you're somebody that you know, of, of course, like uh, like most people, I I first came to know of you and know of your work because you were an early person in the the social media space and you know Twitter and, and brands and, and things like that. How have you seen this arc and how do you feel like the lure of social media fits in with how we successfully play the long game or don't? It's a great question, Dory, and I think it, it, social media is a, it's a dangerous drug. It not only uh, distracts you, um, potentially, but it also amplifies who you are, uh, for better or worse. And I, I think the best... The best applications of social media, at least on the brand side, to me are tied directly to corporate goals and to communications goals. They are in service to something. They are not being done simply for the sake of being done. And having a team, having people with whom you collaborate and you you gut check yourself and you, you, you zoom out, I think this is really important, looking at the big picture from time to time. Because as you say, it's it's easy to be in the weeds. It's easy to get tempted by, um, you know, the, the the metrics, the likes, the the comments that you're getting on a minute by minute basis. But bigger picture, what are we working towards? How are we all marching together? And how are we doing what we're doing in service of achieving that goal? And I think having the right team in place is absolutely essential. 
Yeah, that's right. So, so that leads me to uh, this question, which is really around. Yeah, I mean, you're you're you've been known as a, an entrepreneur for a while, a good, good uh, decade or more. You've you've really achieved some amazing uh, things in your career, and it's in in some cases um, you, you've been doing it on your own. You know, when when you write a book. Um, you, you're in your head. Now, obviously, you have to turn it over to an editor and whatnot, but how do you manage to stay motivated and stay focused on the long term when it's just you working on a particular project? Yeah, this is an interesting question, and it's a place where I actually feel like a framework that Gretchen Rubin has put forward is helpful. Um, she, of course, is most famous for her her books about happiness. But one of the books that she released a few years ago is called The Four Tendencies. And it basically is is breaking down and creating a kind of framework about people's motivational style and what it is that we need in order to maintain motivation for ourselves. And so for some people, they're they're just kind of inherently self-motivated, which, you know, is very obnoxious. Uh, if <laughs> if you are not, it's like, well, f you. <laughs> like, yeah, lucky for you. <laughs> but um, but you know, obnoxiously enough, I am incredibly self motivated. But I think that the that the trick is that she proposes for for everybody else. It's just understanding what your motivational style is. Because ultimately, we just need to trick ourselves into doing the right things. Mm. We're humans. We're very weak, fallible beings. And so, you know, for instance, one common type is like, okay, you know, I, I might not uphold a promise to myself, but I certainly would uphold a promise to somebody else. And so that would be the situation where like, okay, well, I'm definitely going to hire a trainer then because I wouldn't go to the gym otherwise, but I am not going to be a jerk and you know, stand up this trainer who's there at six in the morning. So yeah. I think it's just understanding our own style. How, how do you, how do you think about this, Scott? I mean, you're, you're entrepreneuring these days. Yeah. I, and, and I'll tell you what, uh, frankly, you know, when, when, when COVID hit, you know, I was already working from home, so it was not a big deal for me, not, not that disruptive, um, except the household here uh, got a lot more disruptive uh, in my flow. Right. So I found myself distracted a lot by things that needed my immediate attention. Right. Whether it was uh, attending to someone or helping out with something, uh, homeschooling, et cetera. And back in March of this year, I joined a collective. It's called Chameleon Collective. And basically, it's about 100 of us. We are all solopreneurs, but we are banded together simply by virtue of. Uh, quite frankly, software, um, and, and a shared view of a culture, which I think is extremely important. And when we need to tap into this deep bench of other chameleons, we can do so. So feeling like I'm part of something, feeling, feeling like I'm part of something bigger than myself, I think that helps me stretch toward uh, it, the service of achieving a goal that is, that is big, hairy, and audacious. Yes, I love that. That's great. Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a really unique model, and uh, I, I'm enjoying uh, my time there. So, Dory, when when you think about um, the the importance of, of long term thinking and 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 long term strategy, when 
When did this really become apparent to you? When did you finally kind of pick your head up and say, you know what, I'm maybe I'm I'm going about this wrong. This is the way I need to think about it now. When, when did long-term thinking really become a thing for you? Well, I think probably about a decade ago, it came into sharp relief. I mean, obviously, <laughs> the question of long-term thinking during the pandemic is a, is a different animal, and we can certainly talk about that because that was an interesting time uh, in terms of sort of triaging long-term and short-term. But where I first became really interested in the question of long-term thinking was probably about a decade ago because I was working to build my business. I had been an entrepreneur since 2006. And I realized if I was going to take my business on the trajectory that I wanted it to go, I was going to need to do some things differently. You know, there's, there's different phases that you have. And the first order of business when you're an entrepreneur is to, to just get work in the door. Like, okay, how do I get clients? How do I make this a going concern? And so I had done that and that was great. But the fundamental problem that I had was that I was coming from a background that was not a corporate background. I, I had been a journalist. I had been in politics. I had been in nonprofits. And so I knew people, but I didn't know people who could actually hire me for legitimate amounts of money. <laughs> That's the important part, right? Yes, yes. And so I'm like, okay, I can keep like writing speeches for $500 a pop and that's nice, but this is not really how I want to live my life. So I knew I would have to do something differently. And so I really embarked upon a campaign which was very deliberate and was a gambit. You know, it was, it was very much something that I'm like, wow, well, this might not work, but I feel like this is what I have to do. And it was, it was a campaign about long-term thinking and long-term growth. Uh, so I ended up jettisoning a certain percentage of my lower end business uh, and, you know, making, uh, just making the decision that it was okay with me to earn less money, significantly less money for a while in order to reinvest that time in brand building activities, mm. which were either being done for very little money or no money. And um, I started doing things like instead of doing a bunch of client work, I was reallocating probably 25 to 30 percent of my time blogging. And, uh, you know, from a financial perspective, it looks ridiculous, but it was part of building social proof for me. It was part of building a network for me. Uh, it was generating content that could introduce me to new people. And so it just became part of this, this strategy that I had of, of working to try to become a recognized expert in my space, which I felt like, you know, the theory was anyway, that that over the long term would lead to more revenue in the end, even mm. though I was sacrificing it in the short term. Yeah, I mean, it, it's so hard, isn't it, to, to pull yourself away from things that you think are in service of what you're trying to do today to basically have nothing to show for it uh, immediately for 20% of your activities, 25% of your activities. This 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 number is interesting because the, the, the whole 20% thing, this is part of the culture or had been part of the culture for years at Google, where they would encourage employees to take a day out of the week, out of the five-day week, take 20% of your time and work on something that isn't directly associated with what your job is. Is is, is that just a coincidence or is, is, is that like borne out by some research? Well, 20% is 
I, I feel like it's a good number on a lot of levels um, where this actually came from. I mean, Google popularized the concept. The originators, uh, at least as far as we can tell, were actually 3M, the, uh, the Post-it folks, who back in the day had a 15% time policy where you could sort of experiment on different things for 15% of your time. Um, but, you know, I, I think it's not necessarily a exact number, you know, whether it's 15, whether it's 20, whether it's 25, um, it's all it's all fine. But what I do think is critical is that this ratio expresses something really important. So number one, you know, what, what we're trying to do in building a successful business for the long term at a very fundamental level is how do you mitigate risk? and also maximize potential upside. Like those are the two things. If you can get that right, you are in really good shape. And if you are allocating anywhere between 15 and 25% of your time um, to an experimental activity, it allows you to do both. Because first of all, if you're risking, you know, a fifth of your time, your energy, your effort, if it, if it doesn't work out, it's not going to bankrupt you, right? It's not like you're putting all your chips on one table. It'll suck, but it's not going to be a huge problem that'll devastate you. So you're capping your downside, but also it's enough, you know, it's not like 2% of your time, right? 2% of your time, is that ever going to pay off? I mean, maybe in a hundred years, but for 20% of your time, it's substantial enough that if you actually are consistently investing, you know, over, you know, a period of months, over a period of years, if something is legitimately showing traction, you are able to expend enough energy on it that, actually, you really can get somewhere. And I think that combination is powerful. So as you're thinking about apportioning your time, uh, you know, A, do you track your time? And B, how do you keep yourself from getting distracted? So I don't track my time all the time, but I have tracked my time periodically because, I mean, you know, I, I don't track my time all the time for the for the reason you might imagine, which is, oh my gosh, it's a freaking <laughs> asshole. <laughs> yeah. I mean, oh, it'll kill you. But I have been very curious about it because I know it is a beneficial practice. You know, data is meaningful, right? You can make better decisions when you have data. Mm-hmm. So I've done this twice in February of 2018, and then again in December of 2020. Uh, and I, I imagine I'll probably continue over time to do periodic audits. But over a one-month period for both of those times, I tracked my time. And it really was interesting to see patterns in what I was doing and what, what things looked like. Um, you know, just, just as one example, something that I learned about myself in February of 2018, which I then, um, I was pleased to see that by December of 2020, I had internalized this knowledge enough to have mostly corrected the problem. Um, I was mostly not spending a lot of time on social media, um, you know, aside from what I would call a very targeted professional use of like, okay, I need to post this podcast or whatever, but you know, sort of the scrolling time was mostly not doing it. But what I noticed in February of 2018, when you actually see it in black and white, I was like, Oh, the time I do spend on social media, almost always, it was between 10 and 11 at night. I'm like, why, why is that? Well, I realized that is that magic period where you are awake enough that you can't go to sleep yet but you're too sleepy to do anything, you know, productive. Meaningful, yeah. Yeah. And so I was just like, all right, I'll just keep scrolling. And I, and once I realized that that was the habit, 
I was able to say, oh, okay, well, that's not what I would really choose to do. I should get a book or I should, you know, just do something that would be more useful. And so I was able to dramatically drive down that time, which, uh, which felt very good. But yeah, so data gathering is fantastic in that way. It doesn't have to be fancy. You can just use an Excel spreadsheet. My friend Laura Vanderkam is really the master of time tracking. So anybody that's interested in, in that, she's the author of a number of great productivity books. But, um, and she literally tracks all of her time, like for years, which is super impressive. <laughs> but yeah, in terms of, of not being distracted, I, I think we just have to keep a few things in mind. I mean, the first, um, which uh, people like Tony Schwartz have written about a lot, is about matching the task with your energy level. Um, there, there are going to be some times of the day that you're just better at certain things than others. And so the more we can align tasks appropriately, the less likely we will be to needlessly distract ourselves um, because we, um, you know, we're, we're actually able to accomplish what we're meant to accomplish. Yeah. And I think that that's a piece of it. And um, the second piece is just doing a little bit of planning so that we're not somehow flummoxed or surprised about what we need to do. But, you know, even whether it's the day before or whether it's the week before, we can say to ourselves, all right, you know, I have these blocks of time. How how can I best put it to use? Um, And where we hit problems is where you're essentially staring at a blank page and you're like, oh my God, what should I do? But if you already have a sense of what you should do, you can just dive in. Yeah, that's great. That's solid advice there. Dory, one of the things I think that for a lot of good-minded people, let's say, they feel guilty when they have to say no to people. And that that's the reality. If we have a finite amount of time and we have a finite number of things we can focus on, then we have to say no from time to time. Can you talk a little bit about, you know, what uh, you know, saying yes to everything, uh, how that eats into your schedule and, and, and how that distracts you from achieving long-term success? Yeah, for sure. I mean, this, this to me is a pretty interesting area because it actually changes. You know, this is, this is the problem is that so often what we are looking for, either implicitly or explicitly, is just a, a rule in life that is always applicable. And the, the problem, of course, is that um, is you, you have to really shift things based on circumstances. And it's rare that there is a time when something is always applicable. And so where we get thrown off course, I think, a little bit is the fact that what what is actually a great strategy for us early in our careers turns into a nightmare of a strategy later on. When you are 23 years old, basically you should be saying yes to just about everything professionally because you don't have contacts, you don't really know what you like, you don't really know what you're good at. And so it's only by trying it out and saying like, okay, sure, I'll, I'll do that, uh, that you get a sense of it. And, and that's part of a normal process. That's great. But the challenge is that as you advance in your career, you are going to get a lot more people who want your time, a lot more people who have heard of you, and uh, they they want things. And so if you continue with that same strategy of, I'm going to say yes to everything, 
you are basically constantly stuck in reactive mode because you're just responding and saying yes to what comes at you, some of which might be good, but some of which might be a distraction, rather than setting your own agenda. And over time, I think most of us can probably agree that the secret to our professional success is not just doing the stuff that happens to come your way, but actually fulfilling an agenda that you have carved out and that you think is important. Like, I'm, I'm curious, Scott, how does this play out for you? I mean, you know, you, you have a, a very strong brand. I'm sure you're in demand a lot. How, how do you go about saying no? And how do you, how do you sort of triage the opportunities? Well, it, it's a challenge. And, and by the way, Dory, I have to say your journalistic skills are coming out because this is turning into a two-way interview. This is, this is fascinating. Um, you're making me do a lot of reflecting on a Wednesday morning. Um, <laughs> I I struggle with it quite honestly. I don't like yeah. to, I don't like to disappoint people. But in the end I have to look at am I disappointing myself? And I think that's the strongest thing. Any good leader uh is is responsible for um owning their own decisions, for accountability and for taking the time to reflect and have some sort of self-awareness and, and being honest with yourself about it. And if, if you look at these requests that come in and you say, hey, I'm, I'm doing 20 things, but I'm doing all of them pretty mediocrely or, or poorly, that doesn't really reflect on you that well. And, and I'll tell you what, I learned early on um, in my time at Ford, working with Alan Mulally very closely as the CEO there, and he's a fascinating leader. Yeah, I've met Alan. He's cool. Uh, he is. Uh, the power of focus, and, and I don't use that as a pun with Ford, but when Alan walked into Ford on the first day and walked through the executive garage, all he saw down there were Aston Martins, Jaguars, Land Rovers, Volvos, all of the the premium brands that Ford owned at the time, and he said, gosh, What's everybody working on up there? This is a house of brands. And if you're trying to do all of these things really well, you're going to end up doing most of them poorly. And the strategic decision was made for Ford to cut all of those extraneous brands and just focus on Ford and Lincoln. That was the long-term goal. And it took many years to get there, but Allen's shared vision, his sense of collaboration, his constant drumbeat for where the North Star was and driving people to uh, to accountability themselves was absolutely important in fine-tuning that focus on what Ford was going to do and what Ford was not going to do. Yeah, that's great. That's a great example. Yeah. Um, I, I still get inspired by him, even uh, seven years on from, uh, from my time at Ford. So... Um, so you, you talk about four uh, career waves, as you call them, um, and and I think you touched a little bit on this as you were talking about being, uh, you know, kind of a, a young twenty three year old trying to do as much as you can. Can you can you talk a little bit about uh, these career waves as you've identified them and, and how each comes to play in our evolution of long term thinking? Yeah, absolutely, Scott. So. One of the challenges that I have come across in the clients that I've seen and worked with is that a fairly common problem is that at some point people often feel like they're hitting a wall. Like they're like, oh, you know, I've, I've plateaued or I'm in a rut, you know, whatever, whatever the metaphor is, but they feel like they are not 
advancing the way they want to or the way that they should. And if you dig into it, it is not always the case, but it is often the case that the cause of the problem is that people are persisting in trying to do the same thing over and over again for far too long. You know, they've found a thing that's working for them and they just keep doing it. And it's not that that's a terrible strategy, but the problem is that, again, because circumstances change, we need to be attuned enough to change with them. And we need to realize we cannot, you know, we are not, um, you know, on an assembly line. You know, if, if you have a, a white collar career, uh, it's not about doing the same thing over and over again well. It is about doing different things and having the judgment and perspicacity to know when to do it. So what I identified in the arc of most people's careers is four key waves. And the interesting part that we need to recognize is that it's not, it's not necessarily that it's about you know, going from, from A to Z. Uh, it actually is a circle. Because if we want to keep doing it right, we need to uh, we need to keep sort of reinventing and, and going back to the beginning uh, in in different and sort of hopefully more sophisticated waves. Uh, but the first the first wave, uh, perhaps self evidently, is what I call the learning wave. Because if we're entering a new job or a new industry, a new career, we just need to learn about it. We need we need to immerse ourselves. It's about figuring out well who's who and how does this place work and what matters here, and how do I do my job well? So you, you want to get your grounding, and that makes sense to most people. Um, but then the next, the next wave, which not everybody makes the transition to, is what I call the creating wave, because at a certain point you need to stop just taking in information, and you need to start adding something else to the mix. What's your perspective? What's your take? What are your ideas? Start speaking up in meetings. Start contributing in industry groups. Show people what you bring rather than just sort of parroting back what you've been told. Um, that becomes really important so that people can understand that you have something to offer. And the next phase after that, and, you know, of course, these sort of overlap a little bit, but uh, the next big phase is the connecting phase because if you are creating and sharing great ideas, that's amazing, but it's not going to go very far if people don't know who you are or if you don't have relationships to be able to amplify them. So you need to... Uh, make sure you're building connections in your company or in your industry so that word can spread about what you're doing and also so that you can get better ideas and better data to shape those ideas. And then finally, we go into what I call reaping mode, which is where, you know, you've, you've built something substantial. You know, you're, you're on the path to having really a, a great career, the kind of career you want, and that is awesome. But it's also important to recognize that we can't just, like, rest on our laurels forever because it's not like you come up with something and then you just milk it, right? Like this, is, this becomes like the Kodak problem. Like, you know, okay, okay, we're so, we're so glad you're good at film, but there's a new thing now. Yeah. So we have to keep reinventing and ultimately going back to the, to the learning mode um, and continuing that process. That's, that's fantastic. And, and I would imagine along the journey, as, as we're exploring, as we're learning and creating and, uh, connecting and, and uh, reaping, we run into difficulties. We we fall down. We fail. Uh, can you talk a little bit about the importance of failure and how we use failure as a tool in our long-term progress? 
Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, the first thing to be said about failure, of course, is that um, it's it's really not fun. So, <laughs> I, I I don't I don't really endorse failure in the sense of like you know oh it's such an edifying experience everyone should really go through it like no it's lousy it's terrible if if you know here's the thing like if we could avoid failure then by all means avoid failure that's yeah go for it um but but of course the challenge is that mostly we mostly we can't like there there are roadblocks that's that's just how it is and so we have to come up with a better way of understanding it or framing it or making sense of it because something that that saddens me immensely and was part of what really shaped my desire to write the long game is the fact that I think a lot of people, a fairly significant number of people, are way, way, way too likely to give credence to the the voice of gatekeepers. You know, it, it is to me not at all a foregone conclusion that someone who is a gatekeeper, who is in a position of power, um, that they actually have better judgment than you. Sometimes they do, but it's also true that sometimes they don't. And we cannot afford to let ourselves believe the first time or the second time that it means, oh, we must not be good enough. Um, That's not at all necessarily what it means. Maybe it means that that person had a bad day. Maybe it means that that person just, you know, whatever, they're a country fan and you're giving them heavy metal music. You know, like it doesn't, uh, we can't let ourselves be deterred. But where this all ties into questions of failure, I am a really big fan, and I try to, you know, put this forward in the long game. In Silicon Valley over the past decade, the the so-called lean startup methodology has become pretty, um, you know, common common knowledge and commonly accepted wisdom that it is a pretty good idea to the best uh, extent possible that we should not be spending, you know, millions of dollars and millions of hours creating some like perfect, amazing thing and then suddenly unveiling it to the public because it might be beautiful and perfect, quote unquote, but if nobody is actually interested in that thing, it's not going to make a difference. You need to have a minimum viable product where you're, you know, testing something out in a very fast, scrappy way. And then you find out quickly if, if anybody cares. And if they do, you make it better. And if, they, if you don't, you're like, okay, well, glad I didn't spend a million dollars on that. And you can move on. And I think for all of us, we might know that in terms of <laughs> professionally at the enterprise level. But many of us don't apply that same knowledge to our own professional lives. What I am interested in doing is actually hopefully making failure irrelevant. I, I, I don't love failure. I want to make it irrelevant. Because the way I think about it, if you lose a dollar, pretty much no one cares, right? It's like, you know, is it, have you failed if you lost a dollar? Like, no, you're like, you barely notice. But what I would like to do is to make it so that we are placing enough small bets that if it doesn't work out, you haven't failed. It's like, who cares? You are just able to get data that enables you to make smarter decisions about what's working, about what you like, about what you're good at. And then you can push forward into those things without incurring the, the reputational cost or the, the time and energy cost of trying too hard in an area that you haven't tested and then it turns out not to work. Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. I, I, I'm fully behind you on um, making failure irrelevant again. Um, 
And, you know, it must take a lot of, um, well, let's call it uh, precursive faith, to, to, to borrow a term from William James. Um, as you say, strategic patience, you know, to, to see some of these things through. And you talk a lot about faith, having faith in uh, your vision and, and, and in the future. I want to explore this a little bit with you, and specifically from your background at Harvard Divinity School. Can you maybe kind of bridge where your uh, Divinity School education maybe played into that uh, operation of faith? Yeah, absolutely. And and you're you're right, Scott. I mean, the the latter portion of my book, The Long Game, is called Keeping the Faith, uh, which I mean not, of course, in a religious sense, right. but in the sort of secular sense of uh, look, you've gotta you've gotta be persistent enough. You have to you have to be willing to persevere because if you have a meaningful enough long term goal, statistically it is a lot more likely, just because it's a long term goal that things will happen that you can't predict, and therefore it is not going to work out just the way you anticipated. You have to be willing and able to deal with people throwing wrenches in the works so that you can actually get to that, um, to that destination that you want. So, yeah, I would, I would say that, you know, it's, it's funny. Um, I loved my time in divinity school. There's a saying, there's like a divinity school joke that if you weren't an atheist, um, when you entered divinity school, you would be one by the time you left. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's funny, right? But it, but it's also in some ways it's it's true. Um, I mean, I'm not literally an atheist, but um, but it it does uh, it, it's a it's a useful education in the sense that you are elbow to elbow with people from all the different faiths. You're studying all the different traditions. And you're, you know, you're really digging into questions about like, you know, okay, so who, who really wrote these texts and how did the texts evolve over time? And, you know, what are they saying and how are they shaped by the cultural context and, and things like that? Um, so it, it's, it's very interesting. But for me, I, I would say uh, it's, it's not that I feel like there is, I, I would probably call myself more of an agnostic. It's not that I believe that, you know, oh, we have this preordained fate that we need to uh, actualize. Uh, I, as an agnostic, I'd say, well, maybe we do, but I just don't have enough data. <laughs> I really don't know. Um, but what I do know is that um, I am I am certainly a believer in you know what what, what we can uh, call, and, and this has you know been uh, sort of tarnished over time the the, the branding of it. But you know, it's, I'll, I'll say the sort of uh, the, you know the the gospel of self improvement in the sense that um, I think it is incontrovertibly true that if we do not exert effort and that if we do not have some degree of self-belief and self-efficacy, then it almost is a fore foregone conclusion that we will not succeed. You know, it's not guaranteed that we will succeed if we're exerting effort, but it's pretty much guaranteed that we will not if we don't, you know, try to shape our lives in some positive way. And so I believe that there is real value. I think there's real nobility in us making that effort. We, we, it's not guaranteed. You know, I mean, it's like, duh, 
if it were guaranteed, everyone would do it because, <laughs> you know, people, people are often a little selfish and a little shallow. So if it's like, no, you're guaranteed. Well, obviously everyone would do it. But for me, it becomes um, really a, a, a crucible, a valuable crucible um, where you say, you know what? It might not happen. It might not work. But are you willing to embark on this anyway? Are you willing mm. to give it your best chance yeah. and to make that effort to improve your life and to accomplish something good. And I have infinite respect for the people who, who choose to do that, knowing that the outcome is uncertain. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's somewhat reminiscent of everyone's favorite modern day philosopher, Ted Lasso, who, you know, put that believe sign up in the locker room. And I think it was the final, the final episode of the first season where, um, you know, the, the whole town, all, all the Richmond fans basically don't want to get their hopes up. And he comes out and he says, you know, I, I believe in hope. I believe in belief. And that phrase to me was so, it's a throwaway phrase, but it's so central to having faith in uh, in our desires and our hopes and our plans, regardless of of the outside forces that are coming at us. We absolutely need to believe in ourselves and believe in our vision for what it is we want to achieve in order to get there. Without it, we're kind of screwed. Yeah, absolutely. I, I love that. That's right. Yeah, I'm. I'm. I'm finding way too much um, uh, leadership advice and philosophy in Ted Lasso of late. Maybe it's just the way I'm reading reading into it. Who knows? Well, I think you know we're we're at a, we're at a place where America needs a hero, yeah. Scott. <laughs> hey, and if Ted Lasso's that hero, God bless. Let's do it. That's right. So, uh, Dory, in the final moments here, as we as we begin to wrap up, what what takeaways, what advice would you give to people who are struggling right now, that are being sucked down into day to day tasks, into uh, you know being on the hamster wheel? How would you help them kind of get out of themselves, get out of their own way? and begin on this journey? Yeah. Well, I, I think the, the first thing is, of course, to realize that this is a fairly pervasive problem. I don't, I don't think that there's uh, some pocket of magic people somewhere that are not, uh, <laughs> you know, dragged down by minutiae. I think that most of us are. And, um, and it's, a, it's a struggle that we all face and, and just have to keep dealing with on an ongoing basis. So, um, so it's, it's a common challenge for sure. Um, but I, I think what gives me a lot of hope is some research that was done a number of years ago by Teresa Amabile at Harvard Business School. And Teresa wrote a book called The Progress Principle. And in it, she and her partner, Stephen Kramer, research this question of what is it that makes people, professionals, feel like they've accomplished something? What, what makes people feel engaged and motivated and like they're, you know, they're moving forward in a meaningful way in their lives? And, you know, in, in a world where, of course, there's the oft-cited uh, Gallup study that, you know, 70% of workers are disengaged and whatever – and, you know, we're in the throes of the great resignation now. So it, it, people are keenly attuned to these questions. And what Teresa and Stephen discovered is what, what they call the progress principle, which is that it turns out 
that if you are able to make progress, even literally a tiny amount of progress on a topic or a goal that feels meaningful to you uh, in a given day, that is actually enough. Even if you can move the ball forward because you spent 10 minutes doing something that, you know, whatever it is, if you, if you want to go back to school and get your MBA, if you spend 10 minutes um, polishing one question on your application, that is often enough to be able to feel like, you know what, that, that made the day worthwhile because I'm moving toward the thing I want. We can't always move fast. We certainly can't move as fast as we want. But if we can find a small thing to do every day, uh, it gives us the momentum that we need to be able to move forward. Wow. Such a, a simple yet powerful method for keeping ourselves on track. Well, uh, the book is The Long Game, How to Be a Long-Term Thinker in a Short-Term World by Dory Clark. You can find more out about Dory Clark at doryclark.com. You can even take a self-assessment there and see where you fare on the spectrum of thinking long-term. Dory, thank you so much for being with us here on Timeless Leadership. Scott, I'm so glad to talk to you in your insanely mellifluous voice. So it's a pleasure. <laughs> thank you. We need to reclaim our time, reduce our commitments, focus our attention where it most matters, give ourselves the ability to fail and believe in our success. That's what it takes to play the long game. Thank you for joining us and for being an advocate for timeless and principled leadership, whenever and wherever you find it. I'm Scott Monty. Until next time, may you dream more, learn more, do more, and become more. For you are a leader. <laughs>